Cast and Blast Conversation Season 3, Episode 15. Today we are joined by Alexandra Freeze, Alex Freeze, or at Alex of the Wild on the social medias. And Alex is such a unique storyteller, and she is kind of the intersection between storytelling and science. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy hearing about her passion for sharing science through art and how that works and also all of her experiences growing up in Florida. Fantastic interview. Alex Freeze coming at you right now. Hi, Alex. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm doing great. First question for every guest is always the same, and that is who is Alex Freeze? I am a science communicator, environmental educator, and conservation photographer. That's a lot of things all put together. Um, My background is more in the wildlife biology conservation sphere, but I am somebody who loves gardening and hiking and paddling, whether that be in a kayak or paddleboarding. I am a devout dog mom to a very sweet border collie. And I basically just love anything to do with nature. If I'm outside, if I am in the sun or in the rain or in the wind, no matter what it is, I'm a happy camper. Um, okay. I've got follow-up questions on this. This is, this is, <laughs> we're off to a good start when I have follow-up questions on the who is question. Awesome. Uh, gardening. What are you, what are you growing in your garden? Are you like a flower gardener or are you like a, a, a eating gardener? I'm an eating gardener. That's for sure. I do love flowers. So pollinator gardening is huge for me. I love supporting our local pollinators, whether that be butterflies or even like native bees, native wasps, whatever I can plant. That's like native flowers. I do like that. However, right now I am growing three different varieties of small tomatoes. I have like a little orange tomato, a little yellow tomato and a little red tomato. I know the red tomatoes are cherries. I don't remember what the other two varieties are, but I love the color variety. I'm growing rainbow chard, rainbow Swiss chard right now. And I'm actually growing my very first ever pumpkins. I have five pumpkins that are growing right now and I'm very proud of them. I'm very excited to have my own homegrown pumpkins for Halloween this year. And I'm very protective of them. So like when anybody's like, you know, mowing or weeding around the yard, I'm like, beware of my pumpkins. You gotta be very <laughs> careful. So, um, yeah, I had my, uh, gr- really good luck growing strawberries for the first time this year. And it's, it's like therapy for me, like being in the garden and getting my hands in the dirt, being outside is like such catharsis. We're going to talk a lot about conservation in Florida as, as we do this interview, but I think it's, a, I don't know if you said you're in Virginia. You're in, are you in I am. Yep. I am in Blacksburg, Virginia, moved up here to follow my husband while he was doing his PhD at Virginia Tech and was uh, lucky enough to find work that I really loved. And who knows where we'll go in a year when he graduates. But as of right now, I'm living that Virginia life. Okay. And the other question I have is, you said you kind of have a background in wildlife biology. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. I have a degree in fisheries, wildlife, and conservation biology from North Carolina State University. I graduated in 2014, and that's what I always thought I was going to do. I, from a very young age, I mean, truly in diapers, was catching lizards, catching frogs, catching snakes, marveling at birds. Wildlife is my whole heart. But when I got to college and actually started working with wildlife, I realized that as much as I loved wildlife, I loved connecting people to wildlife more. So I sort of transferred from 
my wildlife biology path after I graduated into getting a master's degree in environmental education, which is where I've sort of built my career path in connecting people to nature, either through the lens of photography or through more formal education, like where I work at Virginia Tech. Okay. Before I want to come back to all of that you just said, but before <laughs> we do, we have these three questions we ask every guest. Okay. It doesn't matter who the guest is. They could be like the most important person in the world. They could be anyone and everyone gets these same three questions. So here we go. And the, really your answer to these three questions will determine whether anyone will listen to you any further. Than this oh question. boy. There's a lot of pressure here. Um, the first one's probably the most controversial. And that is, do you have strong feelings about pineapple on a pizza? So I, have to answer that first by saying I don't have strong feelings. I believe however you want to eat your pizza is how you should eat your pizza. I have to say me personally, I really like pineapple on pizza. I'm a big fan of that sweet and savory. I think it's delicious. Throw some ham on there. I know that that's not everybody's cup of tea. And if it's not like full respect for you, I think I would choose other pizza. I don't think I would, if I had the option of multiple pizzas, I would not choose pineapple on pizza, but like, I'm not mad at it either. Okay. I, I'm going to be honest. You're the, I hate pineapple on a pizza. And generally speaking, I try not to respect people that like pineapple on pizza, but you were the first person to hit me with like the freedom is free. Like do your, <laughs> do your own thing thing. Man, your, your taste buds are your taste buds. Like <laughs> that's great. I would always personally choose like a really well done margarita pizza, like fresh mozzarella, fresh basil, fresh garlic, like any over any pizza anytime. But I, I mean, to each their own. At least my wife will be cheering this on when she listens to that part. That's, <laughs> I believe that's where she would go nine out of 10 times on a pizza choice. Um, the second one is, uh, and we'll get into this in a second that you grew up kind of hunting, fishing, being outdoors, but your favorite boat blind snack, hiking snack, like you, we're going to talk about some expeditions you did. What is people that know you, what are they going to not be surprised when Alex pulls this out of her bag? Snack wise gummies. A hundred percent gummies, what at like sour gummies, Haribo, little Teddy gummies. They're perfect for hiking because it's immediate energy boost, you know, just sugar straight to your muscles. Um, they're, you know, they can be fairly quick. It's not like you're crunching something. If you're in, I've been in many a boat, I've been in many a blind, you know, they're, they're a nice quiet snack. And I'm just, I'm a big fan of gummy texture, you know, boba teas, like anything like that. That's got, I don't, and I know that's also probably pretty controversial. People are like, oh, gummy stuff is gross, but I think gummies are delicious. And anybody who knows me will tell you, oh yeah, Alex loves gummies. Okay. I, I love gummies as well. That's a good choice. I don't like the sour gummies, but I like, I like, like gummy bear gummies. Like, yeah. like, oh, love like Haribo, like that golden pack of gummies. Oh, the OG. so good. Yes. <laughs> Do you have a favorite little Debbie snack? Yeah. I the classic oatmeal cream pie, which I think is little Debbie, isn't it? it yeah. Is. That, it that's is. definitely little Debbie. Yeah. A, a good oatmeal cream pie. It's, I don't know. It's just kind of hard to beat. Like a, I'm a, I'm a pretty like classic girl, like the classic margarita pizza, classic uh, oatmeal cream pie. Yeah. Can never okay. go wrong. Th that's an excellent answer because um, yeah, it's hard to beat the original. And I feel like that's like the original little Debbie. I don't know if yeah. it is or not, but it feels like the original. One of them. It's gotta be like top three original. So we, we, I, I teed this up a little minute ago, a little second ago, a minute ago. Can't talk anymore. Um, <laughs> But you said you got a degree in fisheries, wildlife biology. Did you grow up? How did you kind of like fall into the outdoors? Did you grow up? I, I think you mentioned this, but did you grow up like hunting, fishing, hiking, camping, or tell us a little bit about who you were growing up? 
Absolutely. I did all of those things. I grew up hunting, fishing, hiking, camping. Um, I have to say myself, I am not a hunter, but I have many members, my little sister, my dad, my husband are all hunters. And I have really enjoyed spending time with them outdoors. But from a very young age, I was so lucky to have parents who dedicated intentional time to taking my sister and I outside. My grandmother, my mom's mother owned a 400 acre acre cattle ranch in Bradenton, which is about an hour South of Tampa. And I spent my childhood running around that ranch eating wild oranges, watching, you know, wild hogs and deer run through the palmetto and, and, you know, oak like land that was just, it felt, you know, so wild and untouched. And, and other than that, I grew up on the coast as well. My um, other side of the family um, had a house on little Gasparilla Island, which is a smaller Island just North of Boca Grande. And I, my parents met down there, got engaged down there. Like it is like my family's heart and soul there. And I grew up running around the sand dunes and playing in the sea oats, chasing gopher tortoises and the occasional years and years and years ago, Eastern indigo snake. And it was something my parents would always take the time to point out to me, teach me what this animal was, what this habitat type was, you know, they weren't necessarily conservationists, but they were outdoors men and women. And it just, I mean, I think the very first job I ever said I wanted to do when I was like eight years old was be a herpetologist. I was one of those kids, you know, deeply inspired by Steve Irwin and Jeff Corwin and and all of those. And it, I just knew I was going to do something with animals and something in the outdoors from as soon as I could conceptualize what a career could be. Now you, you said, first off, Little Guest Real Island, uh, that's the first mention of it on the interview podcast, but we talk about it all the time because that's my home away from home. And it, it, that's my, amazing. It's one of his favorite places. Oh my world. gosh. What a small world. Cause that's not, it's not a big, it's like a seven mile long Island. Like yeah, there's yeah. not a lot of people and you have to get a boat to get down there. At least we're our places at the very Southern end of the Island. So the, uh, the, the other side of that thing that the other thing that made me think as you were kind of talking through that was, um, and we haven't said this on the podcast yet, even though you live in Blacksburg, Virginia, you are from Florida. You talked a little bit about your, your family history of being from Florida, like yeah. you're not a recent Florida family. No, no. My family it goes back six generations in Florida. So I am a ranching heritage, Orange Grove heritage, like, Floridian. And I love that. I didn't really like embrace that identity until I got to college and, and honestly came back to Florida and and started working in conservation in the state and realized, you know, what that meant Consider like, especially being a state like Florida, that so many people move to at different points in their life, born and raised in Tampa, uh, six generations of Florida goodness. And um, I feel like I, as much as I know about Florida, I feel like there's still so much more to learn about my personal family's heritage and, and just so much about the state in general. I could like spend my whole lifetime just learning about what it means to be, you know, a Florida family. So how did you, you said you're a science communicator. What does that mean? Can you explain yeah. that or unpack that a little bit? Absolutely. So as a science communicator, it's my job to take scientific concepts, scientific knowledge or studies or anything that has to do with 
for me personally, the field of conservation, wildlife biology, or this is a really big word, anthrozoology, which is the study of the animal-human relationship, and make that knowledge and those scientific understandings, which can very often be very full of jargon and you know, complicated concepts accessible to everybody. And for me in particular, I communicate science to students and to the public through my social medias and various media projects that I've been a part of. So it's, it's taking what could be either complicated or hard to understand scientific concepts or thinking and making it accessible and understandable to as many people as possible through what I have particularly done, which is media and education. So let's talk about some of the media that you've done in Florida. Um, you, you, you have a connection to the wildlife corridor, kind of a, a behind the lens connection. Is that, is that the right way to say it started? Yeah, I, I think that's a good way to say it. So the, the Florida Wildlife Corridor Coalition and I go back quite a long ways. Um, back right when I graduated from my undergrad and before I started grad school, actually right when I was supposed to start grad school, I delayed it for three months. I got an internship working with who I know is a friend of the podcast, uh, Carlton Ward Jr., right when he was about to do his 2015 Glades to Gulf expedition, 70 days, 1,000 miles. And uh, that's when I got my first start of that, as you said, uh, behind the scenes work with the coalition as the production assistant for the film, The Forgotten Coast Return to Wild Florida, which was uh, directed by um, Eric Bendick of Grizzly Creek Productions. Fabulous human being, by the way. Um, and I, I kind of dipped my toe into what it was like to uh, you know, communicate science through a masterfully done, let, you know, communicate this, this adventure and this mission and, you know, corridor science and conservation science. And from there, um, I was able to be part of the 2018 um, Headwaters to Heartlands expedition, which ended up being the last green thread film. I was the associate producer along with Lindsay Cross, who I know has also been on this podcast. She and I were co-associate producers. And then um, just very recently here in uh, 2021, I uh, was able to be part of the latest Youth Florida Wildlife Corridor Expedition, which is the Spring to Shore Expedition and help uh, get that film, you know, up off the ground. It has not come out yet. We don't, you know, there's still a lot that needs to be done with that. But um, yeah, I, I uh, seem to have uh, brought together quite a little collection of, uh, of productions uh, based around exploring and talking about how incredible wild Florida is. So it's funny you mentioned Lindsay. I actually recorded Lindsay's interview today. I don't know what order these will come out in, but I'm going to, you, I'll try to put you after Lindsay. So since you gave her credit, then you can hold that over her. <laughs> Absolutely. Head. And she and deserves that. all of the credit. She was the executive director of the corridor at the time of last green thread. And oh my gosh, she was so integral in making that happen and saving my butt on a number of occasions uh, during that expedition. I acted as the logistics coordinator, as well as the associate producer of the film. And uh, oh my gosh, could not have done it without Lindsay. She was my lifesaver. What, what did you personally take away from those experiences? Because I want to talk about what you wanted the audience to take away, what you saw the audience take away. And, and I'm lumping all of them together because I know you had varying degrees of involvement. And I want to camp out on the on the youth wildlife corridor in a minute. But like, what did you personally take away from from those experiences? 
That's such a great question. And that's not something I ever like talk about very much. I feel like I always talk about what the, you know, what the actual missions of the film were, like what we hoped the audience would take away. But I mean, I, as I've progressed through my career in science communication and education, I think I took away just the, the complete utter importance of inspiration in people's connection to wilderness it's so easy for us to, you know, talk about experiences or to, you know, share how important the science is behind why we should protect wildlife corridors or why, you know, the things we do as educators all the time. And I, when I say we, I mean myself, but you also as an educator having a podcast trying to, you know, get important information out there. But there is something so special about, you know, I've watched this film from its, you know, infancy, literally the filming of each scene to sitting in a room full of, you know, an audience watching a premiere for the first time and just watching like those sparks of inspiration to be like, oh my gosh, I thought swamps were such bleak, dreary, terrifying places. And when they actually get to see a production like this, see a storytelling tool like these films or like Carlton's photographs or my photographs, and they get like just like the biggest thing I feel like from this experience is just how important that inspiration is that then collectively melds with how important the relationship between artists and scientists is. I mean, we could as scientists and as myself being a photographer and an artist as well, like science needs art to inspire people to care about it. I, I mean, I, I believe that wholeheartedly and I feel like these films explain that explain that to me science needs art for people to care about it yeah and I maybe and that that might science needs art for people to care about it that that may have come across really strong but what I mean by that is I feel like a lot of times we can see science in a daily context whatever the science happens to be and it's for a lot of people can feel very foreign feel very other feel very separate like oh those are what those people do over there who have you know it can be very alienating but when you bring an art form like this masterfully done film or beautifully um constructed photographs or poetry or incredible writing and you take scientific concepts and make them like beautiful and heartbreaking and compelling and intriguing to people, then people start to be like, oh, well, maybe this wildlife corridor is something I need to learn more about. Maybe I need to not say phrases necessarily like drain the swamp without understanding how important a swamp actually is. You know, those are just kind of examples, but I, I lived so much of, of my life, you know, in a university setting where art was in one building and science was in another building. And so much of my professional career has been this beautiful blending and mixing of art and science and storytelling and land protection and wildlife protection. And I just like, it's what I think is one of the best tools that science has in sharing what it has to say is through the medium of art. And I hope that 
more scientists uh, take hold of that and, and more artists want to tell science stories. I think that's, it's just a beautiful collaboration. That was a lot of rambling, but uh, cool. I, just, I love the intersection. I think the intersection is so fascinating. I, I, as you were talking about that and you were looking, you were reaching for some words, I wrote down, um, it feels very sanitized or sterilized when mm-hmm. you look at science. It doesn't feel personal. Totally. And what you're doing is giving it a personal feel with art. I so, love that. I think you said that beautifully. Well, I had time to think about it while you were <laughs> As I'm sitting here, like, you know, trying to, you know, make cohesive thoughts, but no, yeah, that's, that feels exactly right. So, okay. I want to step away from the wildlife corridor for a second. I want to talk first, tell us about the hidden wild project, because that was a project that was a little bit different. It was so totally different from the Florida wildlife corridor coalition, but similar in that it's, you know, just an adulation of love for wild Florida. So Hidden Wild was a film that I got to be part of in 2020 in the before times, uh, truly the direct before times in February, 2020. Um, I was fortunate enough to be chosen to lead three high school students on a seven day, 70 mile hiking, biking and kayaking expedition through Palm Beach County through some of the most beautiful and wild places in Palm Beach County. I think a lot of places that people absolutely do not associate with Palm Beach County when they think of the golf courses and the beautiful resorts and, you know, things that are very cool. But Palm Beach County has a, you know, nationally recognized wild and scenic river in the Loxahatchee River and the Loxahatchee Slough. There are Longleaf pine for, or um, sorry, not longleaf pine, um, slash pine forests and cypress swamps. And we took these three very urban students who had basically no experience in the outdoors whatsoever and took them on this journey of discovery to connect with the wilderness hidden inside in their own backyards. And uh, I got to say, it was a pretty darn cool experience. Uh, how, how old are these kids? We had a, at the time, now, you know, we're almost two years later, but at the time we had a 13 year old boy who was just going into ninth grade. He was in eighth grade at the time. We had a 16 year old 10th grade girl and we had an 18 year old senior boy. So very diverse, you know, boys and girls, huge age range. And um, they were some of the funniest, most insightful just absolutely hilarious, amazing kids I've ever worked with. So how did that work? Did you do it almost like a corridor type trek? Did you go from one place to another? Exactly like a corridor type trek. And um, he would uh, absolutely back me up in saying this, but the man who founded the expedition, his name is Benji Stute. He's the um, program director for um, the Environmental Resource Management Division of Palm Beach County. He was inspired by the Florida Wildlife Corridor Coalition Glades to Gulf expedition that I was a part of, which was before I was even brought onto the team. And he was like talking about it. It was like, oh, that's hilarious. Like I did that one. Like I'd love to do this one too. Um, so yeah, the this expedition through Palm Beach County was absolutely inspired by um, Florida Wildlife Corridor Coalition expeditions. And we did, we camped every night We um, were lucky enough to have an amazingly supportive logistics team that helped move all of our camping gear and food and all of that from one place to the next so we didn't have to carry it with us. Thank you so much for that, by the way, Palm Beach County logistics team, because it is not fun. Uh, Even, you know, February in Florida is still not that cool to have a massive pack on and, you know, be doing that stuff. And we we did some swamp hiking with a, a local avian ecologist, Dr. Mark Cook. 
Um, we caught an amphiuma, which is this like amazingly cryptic swamp amphibian. It's like a proto salamander. We kayaked down the Loxahatchee Slough. We um, got to swim with manatees. We did everything. It was a very packed seven days, but these students were up for any and all adventures. What, and I'm guessing that was paid for by Palm Beach County Chamber of Commerce or someplace that like they want to promote Palm Beach County's wild areas. Is that the idea? Yes, that's exactly right. So very different from Corridor Coalition Films, which are, you know, this is all like the, the, the nonprofit making this happen. This expedition was um, sponsored by Discover the Palm Beaches, which is the tourism board of Palm Beach County. And the film is really a tool to highlight the amazing ecotourism opportunities that exist in Palm Beach County. Every single waterway and um, piece of land that we navigated during the expedition is public. The, anybody could go and repeat the exact trek of the expedition that we did and can experience everything that, you know, we experienced. I don't know if they can catch an amphiuma, but, you know, they can go there if they want. Um, a lot of the hiking was on the Florida National Scenic Trail. The paddling was on the Loxahatchee River, which is a national wild and scenic river. And um, the, the, the tool of the film, which is about a 26 minute film, is being, you know, used to promote just how incredible this remaining wilderness is in Palm Beach County and how hidden in plain sight it is and, and just trying to elevate the awareness of, of how great these spaces are and um, bring people to them. It, it's such a unique space as someone that spent some time on the Loxahatchee. Like it's a, you would not think you were in Palm Beach County. You like, think you're in Jurassic Park is where yeah. you think you are. It's so prehistoric feeling and almost like Amazonian. Like it's, it's very deep and dense and, and dark, but like in the most beautiful way. Okay. I want to pivot back because you said something and it kind of triggered something. And so I'm going to ask for some behind the scenes information here, some insider baseball trading. Um, <laughs> you talked about logistics team. How did logistics work on a wildlife corridor? Like, like Trek, like, do yeah. you teams that go ahead and set up the tents or like, how does that work? So it's totally different for each expedition. I can speak from very firsthand experience, having been logistics for the Forgotten Coast and having been logistics for Last Green Thread. Um, it completely depends on, you know, what's trying to be accomplished that day or that week on the Forgotten Coast we had um, two vehicles. We had Carlton's completely decked out, snorkel attached, wench attached expedition vehicle. And then we had uh, my vehicle, which was a Toyota Sequoia that was so lovingly provided by my mother. My mother, the wonderful saint that she is, was like, sure, you can take my vehicle and probably trash it in the forest, like whatever you're going to do with it. And then I also towed Carlton's, I believe, oh, he's going to call me out if I get the length of it wrong. I think it's a 17 foot Mako. Okay. I'm not in, that feels right. Carlton confirm. Is it 17 feet? I don't remember, but uh, I towed his boat on a trailer and I would launch his boat and drive his boat. And we would have the film team based out of the boat filming Carlton and Joe and Mallory as they were paddling or doing whatever they were doing on the water um, which it's like one of the, my favorite skills I ever learned from any job I've ever done is how to load a trailer, how to back a trailer, how to do all. I feel like it's such an empowering thing to be able to like do that. I love it. Um, but uh, so it, most of the time, at least on the, and again, only the two expeditions with the coalition that I've been part of, 
we would um, drive like the camping gear and the food and all of that from place to place. And, but we, we wouldn't set it up for them. You know, we'd all get there cause I'm also camping. I'm also, you know, doing that stuff, but there's just, it, especially when you're making a film, the, the sheer volume of gear that you have to deal with every day is just astronomical. So it's so, it's so much better to have, you know, that stuff kind of moved along forward or like leapfrogged at least um, between two different vehicles. But there were many times on the Forgotten Coast, especially because it was so long, where Carlton and Joan Mallory had their packs. They were, you know, we would say they were unsupported camping and the support team would go and like, you know, do a bunch of laundry or stock up on food or, you know, I would very often go and edit a bunch of Carlton's photographs or help write posts for Facebook or Instagram, go find internet, you know, somewhere and get a lot of support work done while they were unsupported. Um, on the Last Green Thread expedition, um, it was almost always a support vehicle moving gear from one place to another. They did camp, I think, because that was only seven days. I think they might have camped two of the nights unsupported. Gosh, I wish I could fully remember, but it was almost all, you know, a car could meet them at their campsite with all of the gear that they needed. Um, it's something unique to think about because as someone, like I'm sure a bunch of people listening to this consume media content, like everyone does today, right? That's oh, yeah. YouTube's how we consume everything anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and you don't always think about the logistics that go into actually pulling this off to get oh, they are incredible so shots. And it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not reductive at all to the work that the, that the expedition team is doing to think about the support that goes into that. Oh, not at all. I, I think it's even, you know, I, I give a lot of props and credit to anybody who's doing an expedition and realizes the importance of having like quality, really well thought out and constructed logistics support, because you can do so much more if you're, I mean, say, you know, if you were the person that had to, you know, pack up, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure there's some sort of like, you know, satisfaction in doing it all yourself, but like the films are as good as they are. The experience is able to be shared in the way that it is because of the sheer volume of logistics support that they have. And, um, and that's interns and assistants. And, you know, with our Hidden Wild expedition, that was Benji's whole team with um, Palm Beach County. And it was just men and women who gave so sacrificially of their time because they knew they weren't going to be on camera. They knew they might not even make it into the credits of the film, but they believed in the mission and wanted to support the work that was going on. And honestly, and I might be a little biased because I've been logistics so many times, but logistics is the backbone of any expedition. Yeah, all the people on camera are really nice and have a very important job to do, but it doesn't happen without the logistics team. So it's, shout out to all logistics people. <laughs> it's truly a team effort. Like, like, I, you know, I, I watch sports a lot. You can, you can root for the best pitcher in, in baseball, but if he doesn't have an outfielder or right fielder, that may be the lowest paid player to catch the ball or the guy that comes off the bench to, you know, bat in the line. Anyway, absolutely. It, it takes an absolute team. All right. I want to come back to the youth wildlife corridor expedition. This most recent one you did. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's some similarities between it and Hidden Wild, but there's some differences too. I just want you to tell us about that, that project, kind of what you're working on. Absolutely. I feel like I'm still like basking in the afterglow of expedition life. We um, just completed the expedition in July. It was July 21st to the 24th. 
um, of 2021 and very similar to Hidden Wild in some ways, but very different in other ways. So Hidden Wild did sort of inspire this expedition, which I feel so lucky to work with a group like the Coalition, who has done so much incredible work that can still be like, oh my gosh, like other people doing incredible work inspires us too. So um, our... Uh, we called it the Springs to Shore Expedition. There is no film title yet. You know, that's still, we're just working on like basic editing right now. So a Spring to Shore Expedition is what it's called. Um, we have, um, and when I say we, the, the coalition has worked really hard over the past couple of years to develop a relationship with um, the community around um, Rainbow Springs, the Rainbow River, and the Withlacoochee, which is the communities of Dunellen and Inglis and Yankee Town, and a little bit farther south at Homosassa. That's really the nature coast region is what a lot of people call it. We actually visited that region on the 2015 expedition. We stayed um, on a small ranch in Yankee Town. We spent time in Cedar Key. This was this spring to shore expedition was really a revisiting of a lot of places that Carlton and Joan Mallory had, and myself had experienced in 2015. And we wanted like a checkup. How are things doing? How are, you know, different conservation projects going? And let's spend a little bit more time in these beautiful, absolutely stunning, in my opinion, some of the most beautiful places in Florida. The Rainbow River is just an actual gem. And do it with a total unique perspective of working with students. So we uh, sent out a call for applications from students from that Nature Coast area. We sort of had like a pretty wide definition of what the Nature Coast was. We wanted to, you know, invite as many students to apply as possible. And we also really wanted to highlight women in this conservation science field. So we put the call out to young women in the area. We also hired the very first ever female director of any Florida Wildlife Corridor Coalition film. Her name's Jenny Adler one of my personal heroes. She is a National Geographic uh, photographer and explorer who's been working in the Florida Springs sphere for a long time. She has her PhD. Talk about like a scientist who is also an excellent communicator. Like her work blows my mind. So she and um, her director of photography, who's her partner, Ian, we um, hired them to be the storytellers and we chose these three young women to be our representatives for the coalition. A young woman named Marin from Gainesville a, and then uh, two young women from the Crystal River area, uh, Mallory and Ava. And all three of them, um, Mallory and Ava were 16 and Marin was 14. And differently from Hidden Wild, we wanted these girls to already have shown a vested interest in the environment. Hidden Wild, we really wanted students to, I don't mean to keep drawing comparisons because Hidden Wild is not the coalition at all, totally separate, but Hidden Wild was really like novices. We wanted kids who had not had a lot of experience, take them on something totally unique and new with the Spring to Shore expedition. We really wanted to go deeper with these girls who already were, you know, going to environmental camps, entering science fairs, showing an interest in conservation and wildlife in their state. And these girls exemplified that 
beautifully. Um, two of them had actually attended the Academy of Environmental Sciences in Crystal River, which is a two-year program. It's their freshman and sophomore years of high school where they go to this academy that's dedicated specifically to environmental science learning, which like, I wish I had had that growing up in Tampa. Amazing program. Um, and, uh, oh, and I'm, I'm so sorry. I misspoke that. Only one of the girls has gone to the Academy of Environmental Sciences, but two of them have been involved in this um, like shore camp. Um, it's like like an ocean camp, but it was they were there at the same time, but like didn't really know each other. And then they got to meet each other on this um, expedition, which was really cool. And we took them on this grand adventure and had the just the you know they really. I mean, everybody who worked with them just felt so inspired by them the whole time. They were so curious and inquisitive and just soaked up like every little mor morsel of, you know, information and experience that we gave them. And it, oh, it was, it was just the best. Okay. I'm going to, I am going to ask you to maybe not compare these two projects, Hidden Wild and the, and the Sea to Shore expedition, but I'm going to ask you to draw um, some conclusions out of this. You, you've done two projects where you work with teenagers. What is it about working with teenagers that appeals to you? I mean, I, I don't know if anyone else has done this. You've done the only two that I know of for two different organizations. Um, what is it about working with teenagers that makes it so special? This is going to sound really silly, maybe, but like teenagers are such a challenge. Like teenagers, I feel like are at this beautifully difficult and awkward and amazing stage where they're like full people, like they're full, like they are, you know, figuring out who they want to be in life. And they're, you know, finally absorbing information and processing it in a way that's, you know, a lot deeper, you know, younger kids, I mean, you can tell them something kind of just like they take it at face value and they're like, okay, an adult said it, I believe you teenagers are like wrestling with you and they're like, well, okay, you said this and we experienced this, but like, I understand it this way. Help me wrestle with it. Help me justify it and, you know, sink my teeth into it and really like figure out how it applies to me in a meaningful way. And that's just like the coolest thing ever to me that like these young people and especially young people, and this is one of the things that like, and just makes this the field I want to like work in for the rest of my life. Like watching young people who are at that age of really like making their life their own figure out that like, oh, I'm a human being on planet earth. That's not separate from the environment. Like a lot of times, I mean, even us as adults live, like we're not part of the ecosystem and we're not part of the greater, you know, biosphere. And at that young of an age, when they're starting to be like, oh, like my actions matter, my voice matters and they're discovering their voice and they're discovering their, their passions. And they're starting to make those decisions of like, okay, like I, maybe they don't want to be a conservationist or a biologist in their life, but they're like, starting to let that knowledge sink into their like psyches and be like part of who they are as people. And that's just like talking about, it gives me literal goosebumps. Like I just think that age is, and I love they're they're the funniest people. They are <laughs> like, have me in stitches on the ground. I mean, like the littlest comments or the little, like our three girls on the, um, 
spring to shore expedition were like filming their own, just on their iPhones, like their behind the scenes, like commentary of what they were doing every day, which I ha- I really hope they'll share that with us one day. Like, uh, and just listening to them, like they're, I just, I would die every day. Like, it was just so funny. They're just the best. Like teenagers get a lot of crap from like the rest of the world. I feel like, or that, that sounds dramatic. Very often, I feel like teenagers are not given the credit that they deserve for how cool of a stage of like human that is. And I just love it. It's so interesting listening to you talk about it. I think as a dad of, I've had two teenagers now um, and I have one that's 15. So he's right in that sweet spot that you're talking about. Yeah. But it's kind of interesting thinking about it. Like I, I think about ducks a lot and, you know, we just came out of fledgling season and ducks mm-hmm. are, they've, they've molted all their feathers and are starting yeah. to fly. And we talk about leaving the nest and all of that stuff. But really, as you were talking, I was like, yeah, I guess my 15 year old is at the age where he would survive in the wild. I'm not going to say he, yeah. would survive, but he would survive in the wild. Like he's old enough to totally. kind of himself and, and, and live. <laughs> I don't, I don't no, know. That's a great. That's a great analogy. And yeah, it's their, it's the first time in their life where they're really like just figuring themselves out and like how things work and are starting to make it like part of themselves. And that's just really cool. No, that's great. I, I think 15 is such a fun age. Um, that's awesome. I, I myself am not a parent. I hope to be one day, but I'm, I'm like very excited for that stage down the road. Uh, let me know when you get there. Um, <laughs> Cause it has its days, it, but it, no, it's awesome. I would not. Try I'm it. sure. Oh, I'm, I'm sure we, we, you know, I just made it all sound like kittens and rainbows, but Maybe, maybe a little bit later for, t- I'll, I'll tell some, some hidden wild stories on, on specifically our 13 year old boy. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you haven't audience. If you haven't watched hidden wild yet, uh, you should check Cortez out. He's our 13 year old and just, just bask in how awesome and hysterical he is. I will put, um, I'll go find these on, I'm assuming they're all on YouTube or Vimeo or they are. I'll, I'll go find links to these and put them into the show notes. So if people are listening to this and they want to go check them out, they can. Awesome. All right. So what is next for Alex freeze? I think the biggest exciting thing that's coming up next is the release of the trailer for our spring to shore expedition. And that should possibly, I think be sometime in October. The film team is working really hard on it. We're very excited to start seeing some rough cuts here in the next month or so, but I think we can be sharing a trailer for the film sometime in October. And that's really, really exciting. I know you got to be excited about that because I know that took so much work and you guys poured your heart and soul into that. Jenny and Ian were such a phenomenal team and Ayla, they, this is actually, um, one of the first media productions I've done that had a truly dedicated sound engineer the whole time. Um, the, the other um, Hidden Wild and The Forgotten Coast and The Last Green Thread, you know, obviously one of the filmmakers was running sound, but also filming and also doing other stuff. This um, Spring to Shore expedition, we had a dedicated sound engineer the whole time and her name was Ayla and she was amazing. She had never done an expedition before. She had never done any, like, I I think she kind of got thrown in the deep end a little bit, but she shone really brightly. And I'm just, the the whole film team, Jenny and Ian and and Ayla and all of the coalition team, um, Nicole Brand, who's the communications director for the coalition, who was my, you know, I guess you could say co-leader the whole time, although we kind of just let the girls lead us through the places. We're just such a phenomenal team. And I know we're all very excited to share the film. 
you know, I, I don't think people understand to put together a film of that magnitude could take years to get it. Like, like it, it is a massive undertaking to put together this thing. That's going to be 25 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it's going to end. The yeah. it's going to it'll, be. it'll probably end up being about 20 minutes. We filmed for, you know, five, six days, like a little bit before the track and like a little bit after the track. And I mean, they will spend, I mean, I would say thousands of hours editing. And that is so inspiring to me being just a still photographer, how much time I spend editing my work. I can't even imagine video, like what a beast. So impressive. People, people, this is not even a real comparison, but people te teasingly say to us all the time, you should video your podcast and throw them up there. And I'm like, no, no, thank you. I'm not interested in the editing aspect of that and syncing the sound and everything. Like, no, thank you. Oh, it sounds like a nightmare. So then imagine doing that. You don't have to imagine you've done it, but imagine doing that. And everybody's got their own individual yes, love mic on plus the it, for, for just days for days. days. So incredibly good. Alex, if folks want to follow you, learn more about what you got going on, um, just see what's next for you. Where could they find you social media wise? Absolutely. I am mostly active on Instagram and I am at Alex of the wild on Instagram. I'm also at Alex of the wild on Twitter, but Twitter terrifies me. So I just try to stay off of it as much as possible. Um, and then I, don't really do anything else on social. Honestly, I pretty much just like post pictures on Instagram. And, you know, if you want to look at, you know, pretty wild Florida, but also pretty Virginia and some work that has to do with, you know, people and animals and science and conservation, then maybe you'll like it. <laughs> no. Awesome. Thank you, Alex of the wild. And I, I would say Twitter is absolutely the wild that you don't want to be in. Like I, no, I can't I figure don't... Twitter out either. It's a bizarro world. I yeah, Twitter, but I just don't go there. And much. I do have to say there is a whole, there's like science Twitter, which is actually like super cool. And like some of my very favorite and like, I think some of the most inspirational people have like amazing accounts on science Twitter, but like you can't get to science Twitter unless you like wade through all the other Twitter and it's just too scary for me. So I just refrain. I would, I would put that in there like science TikTok. Like there's a fascinating yeah. science TikTok out there, but man, TikTok oh, I, ha scary I haven't even touched TikTok yet. And I know like I'm 29. So like, I feel like I'm, I'm like, just a little, I don't know if I can do it. I'm sure I can't. And I, there are some, I have seen some like science communication on TikTok. I am so proud of those people. Yeah, I don't know if I can be one of those people. They're killing it. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much for giving us time and thank you for all the work you've done. Um, it's really inspirational and I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. I'm so happy I got to be here and, and have a little bit of time on Cast and Blast. Loved it. Big thanks to Alex Freeze for joining us. Make sure to follow her at Alex of the Wild on Instagram because she said that's the only place where she's super active. And as always, thank you for giving us a little bit of your time to listen to conversations about conservation in our great state of Florida. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, how about leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts? Five stars would be preferable, but if you can crack the code to figure out how to do that, we would sure appreciate it. As always, we hope everyone has a great week and we will see y'all soon. Rain the